Now, they'd forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? What? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? All right, you remember last week I told you how much I hate Mark chapter 8? This is why. I mean, episode after episode of people being annoyingly clueless and dense. Now, last week it was the Pharisees in the district of Dalmanutha asking for a sign because um, Yeshua, you may call him Jesus, evidently hadn't been doing that enough already. This week, the disciples are arguing about not having bread when they just witnessed Yeshua making bread multiply miraculously for the second time. By the way, have you ever noticed how many incidents in the Gospel of Mark involve bread? This is the sixth time in eight chapters, so that's a, that's a lot. Um, first, we we have the Sabbath controversy with the grain plucking incident in um, chapter two, where Yeshua justified it by reminding the Pharisees about David eating the forbidden showbread on the Sabbath, the bread of the presence that only the priests could eat. Two, there was the feeding of the five thousand Jews in the wilderness in um, I think that's chapter five, yeah. Um, three, the rebuke to the Syrophoenician woman about stealing the children's bread, and that was in chapter seven. Uh, four, the hand washing controversy in Mark five, Mark seven, excuse me, with the Pharisees. Um, five, the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, plus possibly Jews as well. And now this, provision of food and eating with one another and hospitality are so important in the Bible and in the ancient world. You know, actually, we could even, now that I think of it, include um, eating with with Levi and his guests because they, they undoubtedly broke bread. So we see, you know, we see snack time, but what they saw was far more profound. They didn't have grocery stores and they actually cared who they sat down with. They were not like us. And so we must put ourselves in their cultural shoes when when we read these accounts or we're going to just miss the point. Anyway, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. 
If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, and that's called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly radio broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way um, that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah, and that's called Context for Kids. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources for these teachings can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, so let's start this out. And, uh, of course, we're in Mark chapter 8 this week, and we'll we'll start in first. 14, and we're going to be going through verse 21. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. So, remember last week, Yeshua had just gotten into a major challenge with the Pharisees where they demanded a sign from heaven, and we discussed the four possibilities of what exactly they were looking for in a sign. Um, but the reason why, you know, even if we don't know exactly what they were looking for, the reason why is evident. They were setting a trap. If a sign would convince them, oh my gosh, they would have believed a long time ago. Yeshua swore an oath not to give them a sign. And they got back in the boat and took off across the Sea of Galilee again to the to the eastern shore, to the Gentile side. Or to the increasingly Gentile side. Um, next week we will learn what happens when they land in Bethsaida. Okay? But uh, this account, you know, it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. They had forgotten to bring bread. What happened to the seven human-sized rope baskets full of bread? You know, it's just unknown. But there in the boat, there is one solitary loaf. And in this kind of relationship, you know, with disciples and a teacher, it was not the job of the teacher to bring bread. In. And I do have to say, there's no way they could have brought in, brought. In. Oh my gosh. There was no way they could have brought baskets of these size full of leftovers on the boat. All right. It's just, no, there's, there's, you know, 13 guys on the boat. So, um, <laughs> but it's not the job of the teacher to bring the bread to make sure they have food. It's the job of these guys. And you would think that one would have, made provisions, but, you know, perhaps with the drama on shore with the Pharisees, which must have been somewhat unexpected, there was just no time before they retreated to the boat again. And this is the third boat account in the Gospel of Mark. 
not counting the time that he told the parable of the sower from the boat. Okay, we're not counting that because he was just, he was sitting in it so that people could gather around him on the shore and they wouldn't be crowding him. Probably the only way to keep him dry. Now, right after that, we have the incident with Yeshua calming the storm at sea. And the next time is when the disciples are caught in the storm and Yeshua walks across the sea to them. And, and now this, important things happen in boats. Yeshua always reveals himself when they are in boats in this gospel. It's what's called a self-manifestation, where he reveals himself as the divine Messiah in some way. The first time he muzzles the sea which only Yahweh can do in scripture. The second time he treads the waves, which again, only Yahweh can do. This time he's going to remind them of what they've just experienced twice and will challenge them about what it must mean. So anyway, 13 guys, one loaf, and probably at least 10 of them were growing boys. Taking advantage of this, Yeshua decides to tell them a parable. Verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, before we talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians, we need to have a lesson about what leaven is and is not first. Leaven's actually not the same thing as yeast, even though they do the same thing. Leaven is what happens when bread and water react with the microbes in the air and ferment. Now, last year I made sourdough starter so that I could get the context on this. I used barley flour and water and put it in a mason jar. Which, you know, they didn't have mason jars in Bible days, of course. They wish they had mason jars. And I put it on top of my water heater. Also, they didn't have these. They would have appreciated that, too. Within a few days, it was nice and gross and bubbly, and I could make bread with it. Only, it isn't very easy to make bread with leaven, and so my bread was yucky. But if you have skills, you can do this. My baby brother, Adam makes sourdough pancakes with his starter because he has mad leaven skills, all right? And I just hang my head in shame and misery. But the thing about leaven is that it's full of living organisms and can become infected and you can get sick from it. It's important. So leaven was serious business. And these guys, they knew this. That leaven was awesome, but leaven could also be deadly if you weren't diligent and couldn't recognize the warning signs. You know, you didn't, you weren't paying attention how it smells, how it looks, that kind of thing. And it's tempting to hold on to that old lump of leaven because it's a pain to make more. Takes a few days at least, and unleavened bread ain't called the bread of affliction for nothing. I am not a big fan. But he begins a parable here. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We're dealing with two different kinds of leaven here. 
that of the Pharisees and another kind that is associated with the Herodians. But because Yeshua ends up being too busy correcting their concerns about bread, he never interprets this. So we'll do that here. Let's first talk about the leaven of the Pharisees. As this is presented with a warning of watch out and beware, we know that this sort of leaven is going to be the infected and even poisonous variety. This won't be about their positive contributions to society, and they did make positive contributions. This is about their anti-kingdom agendas. Of course, they thought all their agendas were in service to the kingdom, you know, just like we do. And, but they were wrong on some pretty significant issues that were poisoning the Jewish people. And I am going to lazily and shamelessly lift this next material from JewishEncyclopedia.com website. It's their article on Pharisees, which I will, as usual, link to the transcript. Um, and the Talmudists had a real love-hate relationship with the Pharisees. On one hand, they considered them as sort of spiritual forefathers, and on the other hand, they blamed them for destroying the nation in the first century. But we see them in the Bible portrayed positively and negatively as well. According to Sota 22b, there were seven types of Pharisees and five types were bad. Dang. Why this shows up in Sota is just beyond me. But as I've said before, when they were writing the tractates dealing with women's issues, they would often just add stuff at the end that had nothing whatsoever to do with the context. Um, I mean... The sota was the jealousy, you know, test when a husband suspected his wife of adultery but had no proof, okay? All right, so I'm going to quote here from the JewishEncyclopedia.com article on Pharisees. It's way down at the, it's a big article, and this is way down at the bottom. Nothing could have been more loathsome to the genuine Pharisee than hypocrisy. Whatever good a man does, he should do for the glory of God. And that's from a vote. Uh, Nicodemus was blamed for having given his wealth to the poor in an ostentatious manner. And that's from Ketuba. You know what? I'm just not going to give. You can, you can go to the transcript and you can see where they pulled these from, from other Jewish writings. An evil action may be justified where the motive is a good one. Still, the very air of sanctity surrounding the life of the Pharisees often led to abuses. Alexander Janaeus warned his wife not against the Pharisees, his declared enemies, but against the chameleon or hyena-like hypocrites who acted like Zimri and claimed the reward of Phineas. And ancient Bereta uh, enumerates that there were seven classes of Pharisees of which Five consist of either eccentric fools or hypocrites. The first is the shoulder Pharisee, who wears, as it were, his good actions ostentatiously upon his shoulder. Two, the wait-a-little Pharisee, whoever says, wait a little until I have performed this good act awaiting me. Three, the bruised Pharisee, and this is also called the blind Pharisee in where it shows up in other places who, in order to avoid looking at a woman, runs against the wall so as to bruise himself and bleed. Four, the uh, pestle Pharisee, who walks with his head down like a pestle in a mortar. 
5. The ever-reckoning Pharisee, who says, Let me know what good I may do to counteract my neglect. In other words, he's trying to uh, perform just enough good deeds to outweigh his bad because he thinks he's going to earn his earn approval from God. Six is the God-fearing Pharisee, after the manner of Job. The God and seven is the God-loving Pharisee after the manner of Abraham. Um, the explanations in both Talmuds vary greatly. Uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Hananiah, at the beginning of the second century, calls eccentric Pharisees destroyers of the world, and the term Pharisaic plagues is frequently used by the leaders of the time. Ouch. It is such types of Pharisees that Jesus had in view when hurling his scathing words of condemnation. This is still from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Whom he denounced as hypocrites, calling them offspring of vipers, whited sepulchers, sepulchers, <laughs> what a word, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead man's bones, blind guides, which strain out the gnat and swallow the camel, he himself tells his disciples to do as the scribes and Pharisees who sit in Moses' seat bid them to do, but he blames them for not acting in the right spirit, for the wearing of large phylacteries and seat seat, and for pretentiousness in many other things. Exactly so are the hypocrites censured in the Midrash. Wearing tefillin and seat seat, they harbor evil intentions in their breast. Otherwise, the Pharisees appear as friends of Jesus and other early Christians. I will add that only some Pharisees sometimes appear as friends to Yeshua, but that many Pharisees become followers of Yeshua after the resurrection when their eyes were finally opened and their knowledge of the Bible was put to good use in the early church. The Pharisees had great intentions. I mean, we all do, right? But their focus on external piety blinded them to matters to the matters that truly defile people. And despite all their fences around the Torah and their focus on bringing temple-level ritual purity into the home, they were very much blinded. And even those Pharisees who believed in Yeshua during his life were afraid to admit it for fear of the Jewish leadership. And that might be a part of what Yeshua is talking about here, but I think the biggest problem, and we will see this again with the Herodians, is what N.T. Wright calls a clash of kingdom expectations. The Pharisees had certain wrong expectations of um, God's coming reign and what the Messiah would look like. And as we'll see in three weeks, so did the disciples. All right. The biggest problem with the Pharisees, and indeed probably almost all, if not all, of the Jews in the first century, is that, you know, pre-resurrection, is that they were expecting a Jewish kingdom made up of Jews only, and this that this kingdom would crush the Gentile nations. They looked at the scriptures, which described Yahweh coming in power and destroying his enemies, and never in a million years thought that he would instead come destroying the evil spiritual powers behind the Gentile oppressors. When Yeshua came to Nazareth, talking about the widow of Zarephath and, and Naaman the Syrian being fed and healed, 
The people were incensed because they were being told that God was opening up the kingdom to the enemy. They were counting on being on top again, being vindicated violently and avenged for their suffering at the hands of the Gentile kingdoms. And yeah, they're so different from us, right? No. Now, this leaven is incompatible with the kingdom of God. And even today, among some Messianic Jewish congregations and organizations, there's very much this ranking system where Jews are automatically considered to be superior to the Gentiles. It's the same poisonous root that leads to anti-Semitism. Okay, racism is always evil and anathema to the kingdom. God is no respecter of persons, but the Pharisees sure were. Even the righteous ones. All right. Now, next we have the leaven of the Herodians. Of course, the Herodians were Jews, kind of, by the loosest of definitions. The grandfather of Herod the Great was an Idumean, um, which is a descendant of Jacob's brother Esau, who, along with the rest of their countrymen, were forcibly converted to Judaism during the reign of John Hyrcanus. Side note. Forcible conversions are never a good idea. Not then, and not during the Spanish Inquisition. Not now. Not only is it an evil thing to do, but it just leads to trouble. In this instance, it led to them being reigned over by a crazy murderous pretend Jew of whom Julius Caesar once said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And I mean, Herod ate pigs. But he, mur well, I don't actually know if he ate pigs or not. You know what? I might be wrong on that. <laughs> but uh, he murdered a handful of his sons. His sons after him were less crazy, but just as evil, with the exception of Herod Agrippa, who wasn't as bad, but certainly wasn't good. None of them were as excellent builders or administrators as Herod the Great either. But the Herodian leaven had to do with their own kingdom outlook, which was totally secular compared to the Pharisees. They were interested in power and money and collaborated with Rome to achieve it. They were completely sensual, meaning they lived to indulge themselves, and they were violent. They and the Sadducees were Roman collaborators and getting rich because of it. The Herodians controlled the politics of everything except um, Judea, Idumea, and Samaria, and the Sadducees controlled the temple. The Herodians had a fully developed Greco-Roman political vision and built imperial cult temples, cities dedicated to Roman emperors, theaters, gymnasiums, and even built a city on top of a graveyard, which is a big no-no with Jewish sensibilities. I mean, geez, didn't they ever watch Poltergeist? You don't do that. For the record, you know, I watched it when I was 13, and I, I still remember it. Um, so both of these kingdom visions were incompatible with what was happening all around them. Both groups are totally blind to what's going on. Which is why Mark makes sure to spend so much time on why Herod is terrified that Yeshua is a raised John the Baptist. And as we saw from the last incidents with the Pharisees demanding a sign, and Luke 23 where Herod Antipas demands a sign, we can see 
that when people have incompatible visions for the coming kingdom of God, even when they're in opposition, they will still often fight it the same way. In the early church, you know, you've got Pharisees like um, Saul of Tarsus and Herod Agrippa were, they violently persecuted the, the early believers. Okay. Wrong kingdom vision equals wrong tactics in the fight against it. Um, oh, I have to take a break here. I was almost just ready to ramble on into verse 14. But um, yeah, um, whenever we have a wrong kingdom vision, we're going to go about it the wrong way. When Constantine brought violence into the um, congregations, that's, that's a good example. I'll be right back. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context. This week we are talking about the 11 of the Pharisees and the 11 of the Herodians and the clash of kingdom expectations, as N.T. Wright calls it. And he's so right. Oh, man, I, that was unintentional, okay? So let's get back to the text. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14 of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Oh my gosh, really? Oh my gosh, everyone with children totally gets this. You try to teach a profound lesson, and all of a sudden they figure you're just passive-aggressively passive aggressively talking about something else entirely because of their guilty consciences and they start bickering because the word discussing that's you know translated there doesn't do it justice they figure that yeshua is rebuking them because they didn't bring any bread well one loaf and the lesson gets totally lost and now he has to deal with this foolishness remember these are probably all teenagers except for Peter and Levi. Peter because he's married and Levi because he's a tax collector. That being said, teenagers then were not like teenagers now. They didn't spend most of their lives in school and watching TV and playing video games. They maybe got some schooling, usually from their mother in a small town, and, and then went to work with their fathers as soon as they were old enough, so say 12 or 13. Um, they were responsible, hardworking men despite their age, but that doesn't make them wise or particularly mature or any less clueless. They still bicker about their standing and about whose fault it is that there's only one loaf of bread. And I'm so glad that uh, those of us who are older never do this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Verse 17. And Jesus, being aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And Yeshua evidently reacted the same exact way that we did. I just shared with you this important life lesson, and you totally missed it, and you're bickering about bread? Are you serious? Verse 18. 
Are you really that dense? Now, we haven't talked about insider versus outsider language in a while, but here it pops up again. Yeshua gives them private instruction, and yet they often completely miss the point of the lesson. Although, I think this is the first time they genuinely didn't even realize that there was a lesson to begin with. It's an important lesson to learn ourselves. Sometimes we can be so busy with temporal concerns that we miss the bigger picture. Sometimes we are so engrossed with what we think we need and who's to blame that we don't have it that we miss what God is trying to communicate to us. As a matter of fact, this last year has been a really good example of that and it's been very frustrating watching people very much externally focused and not paying attention of what God's revealing in them during this last year, which has been like the best year ever for spiritual growth, if you take advantage of it. But um, here, in the presence of a Jewish-only audience again, we see the Exodus language popping back up. Remember that when he fed the 4,000, unlike the feeding of the 5,000, we didn't see any of the classic Exodus language, but here we have some very unflattering references. Arguing about having no bread. Hardened hearts. Not only are they being compared to the bickering, faithless Israelites in the wilderness, but they're also being compared to Pharaoh who couldn't see the forest for the trees. Pharaoh, thinking he was a god thought that he could hold out against the onslaught of Yahweh and come out a winner. Now the disciples, in the presence of the divine Messiah who can provide enough bread to feed an army, are arguing about not having enough bread for 13 people. It's a matter of perspective, and they still lack that perspective. Now I want you to especially notice the words. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Understand what? Understand who he is. The time has come where they need to understand who he is and what's about to happen. In fact, they don't know it, but they are on their way to Caesarea Philippi on the slopes of Mount Hermon to do something very important. And from that moment on, Yeshua will hide nothing from them. The time for secrecy will be over, and we'll see that in three weeks, I think. Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Now, this is a direct reference not to Isaiah 6 this time, but to Jeremiah 5, 21 through 24, and the context is anything but complimentary. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual boundary that it cannot pass. The waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. 
but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps us keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Gosh, you know, he has shown them over and over again that he is the arm of the Lord, the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah leading the new exodus. He has reconciled the verses that said that Yahweh would personally come and deliver his people, or he is in the process of, you know, reconciling the verses, you know, showing the same supremacy over the water as in the Psalms and Jeremiah, that was the claim only of of Yahweh to be able to accomplish. He raised the dead. He healed the deaf man with a speech impediment. Next week, we will see him heal the blind. He healed the leper, something unrecorded in history among the Jews as only Naaman the Syrian was ever healed of leprosy. And Elijah didn't do that. That was from dipping in the, um, in the Jordan River. He proved his authority to forgive sins by healing the paralytic. He taught without appealing to authority. He healed and cast out demons without appealing to a higher authority. He was recognized by his demonic enemies for who he is. He was recognized by John the Baptist as the coming one for whom he was making Yahweh's path straight. He has shown them in so many ways, exactly who he is, but they aren't seeing it. He asks them, and do you not remember? Remember what? Just the bread? No. Remember everything they've witnessed. Their witness was chosen to change the world and bring the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. It was the original vocation of Adam and Eve to make the entire world an extension of the garden so that all would glory in God's presence in relationship with and in allegiance to him. Let's look at Acts 1 um, verses 6 through 8 real quick. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So after the resurrection, they were still a bit clueless about what was about to go down, but he reminds them of their job. They are to be witnesses of everything they've seen and have been taught. That's why they have to remember. That's why we have to remember what God has done for us too. We get bogged down in our lives and, you know, we often forget all the times that we've seen the miraculous or have been blessed in the midst of a crisis. Remember, which is Zakar in Hebrew and, uh, Mnemonuo in Greek. Boy, I hate that word. <laughs> it is a very common word out of God's mouth. I think Sakar is used over 200 times in the Hebrew scripture in one form or another. 
we are commanded to remember, and it isn't because we aren't inclined to forget. We're very inclined to forget, which is why we come through one crisis praising the Lord for preserving and providing and enter into the very next crisis bitter and complaining. It's true. We all do it. We're just as pathetic as these guys arguing about the bread. <laughs> you know, I imagine that after the resurrection and the blinders were fully off, mostly off, they spent a lot of time kicking themselves for not asking him better questions. Of course, you know, if uh, they were anything like us, the questions would still be ridiculous stuff like, so can you explain Ezekiel's wheels? Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. Verse 19 and uh, 20. When I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many baskets full of pieces, broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Amazingly, these guys have a really great memory for the numerical details, and they can even remember what kind of baskets were used to pick up the leftovers, even though you can't tell. In the English, it uses both of the words that we talked about last week for the big rope baskets that they used in the second one and the small wicker lunch baskets that they used in the uh, the first one. So, but it's like someone who can, you know, accurately quote from the Bible but it never really shows up in their behavior. And in fact, and okay, this is a real sad story. Ah, I had this friend years ago who could tell me any Bible verse just by my describing it. This was before Bible Gateway saved my hide. All right, man, it was like she knew the danged book backward and forward. I could not stump her. But there were problems because she had no depth in herself, okay? Something I wouldn't learn until it was too late. For her, the Bible was an intellectual exercise. Something to be conquered. I don't know if she ever had a, a real knowledge of Yeshua. I mean, you know, she had all the right words because she knew all the verses. She was very intelligent. But when you know the Bible in an intellectual way only, you're only you're going to find fault with it at some point. Anything we tackle with the intention of mastering it will be found lacking. Even the Bible. Bible has to master us, not the other way around. Obviously, you know, the Pharisees were this, this way with Yeshua as well. They would only consider him to be a bona fide prophet if he conformed to their agendas of what Judaism needed to be. Of course, he was never going to do that. And same with the Bible. If you want to promote Constantinian-inspired violence and portray that as a Christian virtue, you have to do so at the expense of Yeshua's hard words in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to refuse to forgive unless they apologize first, again, you have to ignore Yeshua's teachings. In fact, I was reading a really great article by David Instone Brewer yesterday about how difficult it often is to find our dearly held doctrines in the Bible and how we resort to proof texting. Now, 
proof texting is what we do when we want to support a belief but cannot do it from scripture in context. The Pharisees and the Talmudists were masters at this, and we're pretty talented at it ourselves. For example, if we want to hate our enemies, then we can find Psalms to back that up. But we have to ignore God's action of repeatedly forgiving enemies throughout the Hebrew scriptures and be, and being, you know, by human standards, a shameless enabler. We also have to ignore Yeshua's teachings that we are to instead bless and pray for our enemies. But, you know, we can take a verse here and there entirely outside of biblical context and quote it and justify our flesh. And if we're really sneaky, we can just quote the verse and not even give chapter and verse and hope that we're talking to the kinds of people who aren't wanting to check out the context. To be honest, most people don't want to check it, and, and so we've gotten sloppy. We tend to do what we get away with. Now, Yeshua didn't fit any of the established first century messianic templates. It wouldn't be for another 800 years that someone would finally, you know, outside of messianic Judaism, of course, start writing about Messiah ben Joseph, a.k.a. Ephraim. At this point, they were very much looking for a Bar Kokhba figure, or a second Moses, you know, who would make their national dreams come true because in some ways the Pharisees weren't all that different from the Herodians in wanting political power. They just came at it from a different angle, but they still had serious nationalistic goals. But Yeshua's goals weren't even remotely nationalistic in any way that would be acceptable to the powers that be. Not to the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, or or even the Essenes. Especially the Essenes. <laughs> Each group was bent on being on top when the dust settled. That's why they all failed to see the Messiah when he was with them. As we will see in three weeks, the disciples were also very much tied up in nationalistic hopes. Hopes that would be violently dashed and replaced with a much bigger picture that included the Gentile nations and would not happen at their expense or with their destruction. But back to the breaded fishes. Yeshua is having to deal with their temporal concerns. He's kind to us in this way when we're being silly and untrusting. He deals with us where we are, and this is a classic example of that. He could have just refused to talk about it, but instead he interrupted his lesson in order to give them a reality check. They needed to remember what they themselves saw, but didn't just see, okay? They saw the original loaves and the original fishes. They knew there was no more that had been brought to Yeshua, they saw him speak the blessings and break the bread and then the fishes, but then it got handed to them and, and never ran out. What happened? You know, what? well, it happened in their own hands. I always wonder exactly how that played out. Did people really not notice the bread multiplying? Were they partially blinded? So many things that we just don't know. Verse 21, And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
you know, not to be melodramatic, but he still asks us this question all the time, and we are fools if we reply, well, yes, of course. I have my little doctrines and beliefs in a row, so yes, I can teach wisdom to the simple and knowledge to the wise. And I probably butchered that proverb, but I'm too lazy to go check it, you know, since it was rather tongue-in-cheek. So, the Pharisees would have sworn up and down that they had understanding and that they would never miss the Messiah. The Essenes would have sworn up and down that they knew exactly what terrible things were going to happen to everyone except for them. The Sadducees and the Herodians were just riding the wave of wealth and power without being the slightest bit concerned about the Messiah. Well, with the exception of worrying that claimants would upset the apple cart of their power with the Romans. The disciples, as we will see soon, also thought they understood. Just a heads up, you know, Yeshua will reveal his fate in living color for them three times between now and the end of chapter 10, but not, and not only do they object to it and reject to it, reject it, going so far as to rebuke their master, but they're, they're still obsessed with how they will fit in and they're not seeing that this will end in their suffering and martyrdom too. Somewhere, Saul of Tarsus is sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, completely convinced that he has a pretty good bead on everything. He's so sure that he will, you know, that he's going to end up participating in the persecution and martyrdom of his own people. Now, these people weren't idiots. Okay, well, some of them undoubtedly were. But by and large, these were people, with the exception of the Herodians, who were fully convinced that they were serving God the way he wanted to be served and had his seal of approval on their lives. It's the age-old problem, thinking that our understanding is so entirely guided by God that we often make disasters while we are convinced that we're actually preventing them. We need to understand that we don't understand. <laughs> I re, re, Seriously, a lot of problems within the body of Messiah would be solved if we backed down from our level of certainty over anything other than what Paul stood firmly on in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. For I resolved, or for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Years ago, when I was ridiculously divisive over a lot of silly side issues, many of which I no longer hold to or even care about. That's the sad thing. And I'm sure you have those things too. I hope you have those things because otherwise you're not learning. Okay. Now Yahweh spoke to me. He gave me his like outside voice, which I never like when it's happening. And he told me to focus on that in my dealings with people. It feels like a two by four upside the head. Honestly, I call it the holy two by four of correction. It's a life changer. Okay. If the first century Jewish leadership had focused on listening for God's voice instead of assuming that all prophecy had ceased hundreds of years before, there would have been room for understanding Yeshua's message. We can fall into the same trap when we don't realize that we see things as through a darkened glass. So I'm going to end up now 
in 1 Corinthians 13. I hope I have enough time. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of all these is love. We see in a mirror dimly, guys. The sooner we humble ourselves and accept that fact, the sooner we can stop dividing over all these petty little things that we may not even hold to in a couple of years. Anyway, be back next week to talk about the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida. Mm -hmm.